Hallelujah. Father, we have seen in our study of Genesis at the creation account that the galaxies, the land and sea animals, that the creatures that inhabit the entire globe, that the uh, celestial beings, the bodies of light, the greater, the lessers, the galaxies, the distant stars, the planets, and everything that you have created stands at attention at your holy word. You spoke in it and it came to be. You spoke your majestic creative power uh, in your, your word and universes stood at attention as it were. Galaxies uh, circled, Lord Jesus, in the, at the command of your holy word. And life sprung forth out of non-life because you are the sovereign and creator of this world. Father, animals began to populate this earth and on the sixth day man himself was created. And every molecule in this universe owes its existence to the God who can call from nothing ex nihilo creation matter because of the power of his holy word. Now as we approach as your people your holy word this day, we pray that we would stand at attention at your commands, your precepts, your promises, the revelation of your glorious truth and your gospel proclaimed in its pages. We pray that we would be conformed to the proclamation and power contained in your self-revelation within the pages of your holy scripture. We pray that we would be obedient and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ our Lord as your word is proclaimed. And we pray that if there are any lost within the hearing of this message, that they would be drawn in repentance and faith unto the message of Christ alone, by grace through faith alone, saving us from our sins, that we might give you glory even as the trees of the field clap their hands in praise of your great name, and the stars, Lord, with their effervescent light continually bring glory to your holiness. I pray that we would join them, and even more so as we confess with conscious minds that Christ is our Savior and Lord, that He is the second person of the Trinity, that He satisfied the terms of redemption in His incarnation and death, and that He rose again from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, ever lives making intercession for us and ruling over the nations, the kingdoms of this earth. It's in His name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege we have this morning to open up God's holy word. I pray that you would do so with me by turning to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9 in our Genesis series leads us to the Noahic covenant. Noahic is simply turning the name Noah into an adjective. The covenant of Noah, Noahic covenant. The title of this morning's message is the covenantal word. The word of God in covenantal form is featured in our text today, Genesis 9, 8 through 17. The aim of this morning's message is to emphasize the significance of God's covenant relationships considering the example of Noah, the significance of God's covenant relationship with his people by considering, paying attention to the example of Noah. Would you stand with me if you're able out of reverence for God's word? And listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. Here we have the infallible truth recorded by God's providence for us in Genesis 9, from the pen of Moses, verses 8 through 17. Listen to God's Word. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field with you as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. 
Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign for the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds of the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17, And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So recalling the theme of last week's message, which was titled Pillars of the Earth, we noted that one of the features of the events surrounding the great flood was that the world was stripped of everything except its constituent elements of God's original design and created order. By the judgments of God, this work of pruning, if you will, or stripping away the sin, the rebellious ideas, the false religions of the day, the idolaters, and so much of the earth was caught up in these waters of judgment, including most of the land creatures, and all of mankind save seven persons. This event served to illustrate what we call the irreducible complexity of the created order. That is to say, in order for God's world to continue to be sustainable, it has to have at least a certain amount of things. We identified a few of these last week. The worship of the one true God is absolutely essential to the new order following Noah's occupation of the earth after the flood. Also, the natural order requires a pair of each of the kinds that God has made, teaching us something of science, teaching us something about the taxonomy of the creatures themselves. Mankind needs to have a family as well, a basic institution of created order. Civil government is divinely instituted as well by God's special revelation. At this time, for man's life, for the sin of murder, that is, crime, God requires a life, proportional, justice, that is going to be a principle to order uh, the affairs of Noah and company and his progeny in a post-fall world. We have talked about also the cultural mandate, the commandment to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth, to teem, that is to increase greatly upon the surface of the earth. These are basic elements of God's created order. But perhaps the most prominently featured among the basic elements, the pillars of the earth, the stabilizing forces of God's world as He has designed it, is indeed His holy word. And specifically today in terms of covenant. Hence the title of this morning's message, The Covenantal Word of God. The covenant of God to not destroy the world with a flood was absolutely essential to the continuation of the species. If God had not been faithful to this covenant, you and I would not be here today. But because every time a rainbow appears in the sky, God remembers, as it were, His promise to Noah to never again destroy all of the earth in the rising floodwaters of His wrath, you and I live and abide near Cross Lake, Minnesota, and have gathered in this place to worship His name. That is how important to you and me, specifically individually, the covenantal word of God is. So let us heed 
the message this morning we see in the Scriptures. So we see the Word of God as covenant with His people in our passage today. And this is expounded on as God reveals to Noah the terms of life beyond the flood. This event signals the first explicit mention, in fact, of covenant, or in Hebrew, the word is berith. The word covenant appears first in chapter 6, and then it reappears in our chapter today. This proves to be this idea of covenant, God's relationship with man according to specific terms. This proves to be paradigmatic or a pattern that is repeated throughout God's Word and the history of God's relationship with man or God's special revelation or the course of the Bible, the course of Scripture. Even the term testament, which we use to divide, differentiate the Word of God from that which was recorded pre-Christ to that which appears post-incarnation, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that term testament is synonymous with covenant. This is how important and central this idea is to God's holy word. Now, the immediate context in our text today is sovereignly chosen by God to introduce the notion of covenant in explicit detail. This is a profound moment where just a handful of humans and land creatures, if you will, manage to survive cataclysmic judgment, and they will not continue to survive outside of God's covenantal word. Now, there's an exposition that I read, or McLaren's exposition, a few words of commentary on this passage that I found helpful. I thought I'd pass them along to you. Quote, when Noah came forth from the ark after the stupendous act of divine justice, so after the great flood, he must have felt that the first thing he needed was some reassurance as to the footing on which he and the new world round him stood with God. The flood had swept away the old order. It had revealed terrible possibilities of destruction in nature and terrible possibilities of wrath in God. Was any knowledge of His intentions and ways possible? Could continuance of the new order be counted on? The answer to such questions was God's covenant. Close quote. And in that bit of commentary, we see how important to Noah and consequently how important to us in the lineage of Noah, God's covenant truly was. So under these circumstances, our text today unfolds. I'll give you a heading. What can we learn from our text today? Well, among other things, I'm sure, at least this, concepts of covenant revealed through God's Word to Noah. So let us consider this morning four concepts of covenant revealed through God's Word to Noah. Number one, the covenant sovereign, that is the Lord of the covenant. Number two, concept of covenant, covenant scope, the reach, the range of the covenant. Number three, covenant signs, things that signify, that typify, symbolize, and are reference points for the covenant. And finally, we'll close with some summary words of covenant significance. So that's four words, sovereign, scope, signs, and significance. First of all, covenant sovereign. In our text today, in verse 9, this uh, promise had appeared prior to the flood itself. So about a year previously, Noah had heard these words in chapter 6. Noah, or God told him, his servant Noah, in verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Devastating words. What if that's all you heard? 
it would be this declaration of imminent doom with no hope of salvation. It would be like hearing a news report that a tsunami, a tidal wave of destruction is racing towards at 100 miles an hour your beach home and you have a broken down car and as fast as your legs can take you, there's no way to escape the devastating path of this wave. So that under those conditions, this news report would only announce the imminent and the inevitable. But there was more to God's word to Noah. Verse 18, here is the hope. Not just judgment, but also mercy. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh that you shall bring, uh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So here we have the promise to Noah that God will establish His covenant. Yes, I'm bringing a wide-scale destruction. My wrath will be poured out on the world. Nearly all of the land creatures will be destroyed, but I will establish my covenant with you. We talked about Noah's stations on his journey and one of them being faithful waiting. In the ark, Noah was faithfully waiting, among other things, for the fullness, the revelation, the fulfillment of this covenant promise. When will God lay out the terms of this promise? The question in Noah's mind ringing in his ears, what will life look like after this whole-scale destruction and so forth? And so here we have the covenant sovereign announcing his plan. Now, this is according to the structure of covenant. As we see the, the structure and pattern of covenant through Scripture, invariably, the terms are announced by the sovereign, the most powerful party, the Lord, the suzerain, as he's called in uh, Near East treaties. This is the one who has the authority to enact the covenant because he has the power over the lesser party. And in this case, it is God himself. Hence, the definitive, decisive language. The Lord, the sovereign, says, I will destroy the earth, verse 13. He says, I will bring a flood, verse 17. But furthermore, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. He reiterates this decisive plan, the sovereign of the covenant. In verse 4 of chapter 7, I will send rain, I will blot out from the face of the ground the life as he has uh, said. But then he goes on in our passage today to say that he will intervene for his servant Noah and for future generations. So there's a structure here, an announcement of the sovereign, the one who is Lord of the covenant. Also, there is a history in covenants of the relationship of the sovereign to his people. What right does God have over his world to destroy it, one might ask? That would be a popular question from the sneering unbeliever in our culture and day. What right does God have to do with us as he wills? I reject such a notion. I prefer to imagine myself as the captain of my own destiny. I make my own decisions for my own future, thank you. I don't need to bow before a sovereign over me. The answer to this question is in the history of God's relationship with man. He is, after all, our Creator. If He is your Creator, you better believe He is your Lord. If He is responsible for your existence in the first place, you better believe He is your Sovereign. If He is the one that that has made you, then He is the one that has the authority to make the terms of relationship with you following that event. Hence, the recapitulation or the recounting of creation language even appears in our text today. The Lord blessed Noah and his sons, 9-1, and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Language that recalls the first commandment to Adam and Eve. 
We're going back to creation here. He is reissuing the commandment, the original commandment to the original pair that had once had once been given the commandment to populate the earth, Adam and Eve, and now he's reiterating that commandment to Noah. He says, furthermore, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, dominion language. I've given you charge. I've given you control over. I've given you delegated agency to steward, to take care of my world. And so as an Adam-like figure, Noah is receiving this message from the Lord. In part, it's something of a history of the relationship between God and man, recalling these Themes of creation. He says, verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, and so on and so forth. And then he gives terms for uh, government as well in the verses following. Suffice it to say, we have in our structure here the announcement of the sovereign, the Lord, and His intentions for His people, His lesser agents, man. And we have this in the form of divine condescension. This word might be unfamiliar to you, but I try to mention it and emphasize it from time to time. It's a theological term that describes a situation where a God who is holy, above, and untouchable in His righteousness, unaccessible in His glory to us, finite, futile, limited, sinful creatures, unless a sovereign way is made. Condescension refers to God stooping low, making Himself known to His people, making a way for us to be in relationship with Him. This is not something we deserve, and this is not something that God owed us. This is something that God does by His sheer and pure mercy and grace alone. And the quintessential, if you will, the classic expression of God's condescension stooping low to man is Jesus Christ Himself. How did God make a way for man to be reconciled with Him? Not only did He give His covenantal word to Noah at this time, but He gave His living word, Jesus Christ, in the incarnation. The word became flesh. The power and the creative authority, the the second person of the Trinity, took on the form of a servant of a mere man and walked on this earth, but indeed He was no mere man. He was God in flesh. The Word made flesh dwelt among us. This is the, uh, the height of God's act of condescension in Christ. But we see a precursor to this in God speaking in a way that Noah can comprehend at this time. The Word became a covenant reality in Noah's experience at this time, at this time, and the terms of relationship began to be laid out. So we have these concepts of covenant revealed in God's Word to Noah in covenantal sovereignty in the structure and condescension, the greater party reaching low to the lesser party and lifting him up in relationship with him. Let's focus on whose idea this is for a moment. This is all established, as we've said, on divine initiative, God's idea. So uh, kids in the room, you want to play the stop game, everybody's favorite game? All right. So you guys remember the rules. Um, When you hear something, you say stop in the text. So here's what you're listening for. When you hear something that's God's idea, tell me stop. So when when God says, I establish, or I will, or I have, or something like that, tell me to stop. And let's note how many we have in the text. Okay, everybody ready? Here we go. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant. Very good. I establish my covenant with you. That is number one. Verse 10. 
And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the earth, ark, it is for every beast of the earth I establish my... There it is, number two. Here uh, we continue. My covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. Well, God said, well, I'll take that. This is the... This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me, yeah, that I make, very good, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my, very good, I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Uh, Let's go to the next one here. When I bring clouds, so at least at six, right guys? Verse 15, I will remember my covenant. There's seven. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember, very good, 8. And verse 17, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between... So we have at least nine guys that we found. Very good. All of this language in this text, at least nine times repeated, is evidence, it's reinforcing, it's underscoring that this is God's idea. Let me ask you a question. When we consider salvation today, are people most apt to emphasize man's decision in salvation, or are they most apt to emphasize God's decision in salvation? It's an important question. There is a a decision of man involved in salvation, but the most important decision, which is it? Is it God's will or is it man's will? It's God's will. We love Him because He first loved us and gave Himself for us. We chose Him because He first chose us. Turn quickly, uh, quickly with me to Jeremiah 31. This divine initiative is a feature of the new covenant as well. God's idea, God's plan, emphasizing His power and sovereignty. This is not something we could do, come up with, or accomplish on our own accord. Notice Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Divine initiative. This is the language of God's sovereign act. When we worship the Lord, we worship Him not because we've accomplished anything, but because He, in His grace and mercy, has stooped low in His condescension to save us. Because He, in His inscrutable and perfect wisdom, has made a way for us to be restored in relationship with Him. This is basic gospel. It's throughout the Scriptures. It goes back to Genesis, reiterated in the prophets, for example, Jeremiah. And it is emphasized in the work of Christ and fulfilled in in the ultimate degree. Third point under covenant sovereignty The grace of God is magnified under conditions such as these. I listened to a podcast today, and this guy was talking about worldview implications of Genesis 1 and 2. And he said the relationship between God and man is like a U shape, not an N shape. So think of the letter U and think of the letter N. He said false religions, man's ideas, and most people probably understand their relationship 
to a sovereign God in the shape of an N. And what he meant was, we reach up to God, he reaches back down to us, we reach up to God. There's sort of this relationship of dual initiative, if you will. But he said, no, there, our relationship with God is like a U-shape. God reaches down to us. He sovereignly changes us. He remakes us. He, he raises us from spiritual death. We are reborn by the power of His Spirit. We are a new creation. The old is gone. And now we have the capacity to reach up to God. It's God reaching down to us and man reaching up to God because where was the point of initiative started is with God. So because of God's work, God's decision, God's plan, God's provision of salvation, He reaches down, changes us, and then we reach back to Him. The grace of God is magnified in these covenant terms, is it not? Not only is it magnified in the fact that this covenant is by God's work alone, but it is also magnified in the fact that God has the right and the authority to destroy all living flesh. Consider how the grace of God is magnified in the Noahic covenant. It is all the more meaningful as we consider how this grace is extended when we remember the undeniable power and authority of God to judge the earth as we see in this great flood. If mankind deserved whole-scale destruction, how much more valuable, precious, and amazing is the grace of God that spares even a few in Noah's day, but many more as the storehouses of glory are filling with the elect as His reaping sickle of the gospel is bringing in a harvest from every corner of the earth, the magnification of the grace of God considering that we, just like in Noah's day, deserve whole-scale destruction on account of our sin, is featured in these concepts of covenant all the way back to Noah's time. Second major point, concept of covenant revealed through God's Word to Noah, not only His sovereignty, covenant sovereignty, but also covenant scope. How far does this promise reach? Who will benefit from these words that God has given, this covenantal Word? Well, let's read again in our text, verses 8 through 11. Think about who benefits from these promises. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, so there we have two parties, we have Noah, Noah benefits from the promises, and his sons, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So this now extends from Noah to his sons, their wives, and their future children, does it not? But even further still, verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, Every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you. And then what are these promises? That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Wow. The magnification of the grace of God is more still. When we consider the scope of the covenant, it is not just a promise to Noah, but it's a promise to Noah's family not just their immediate family as we find them in the text, but their children's children's children, yes, even to us today, and not just human beings, but even all the creatures across this earth, they benefit from these words of covenant promise that were issued to Noah at this time. This brings into view a concept in covenant called headship, that God speaks often principally to one representative member, but those benefits spread way beyond that one member to all who are in that covenant head. Uh, let me give you an illustration. So let's say you're at home, uh, young people, or you can, everyone can imagine themselves in this scenario, adults as well. 
Let's say your parents or one of your parents, let's say your dad comes home from work and says, I can't believe it. I know you're not going to believe me when I first say it, but I have evidence to prove I have just won $10 million. A friend of mine from college bought me a lottery ticket, and we now own $10 million. Okay, or let's say, husband, you come home and your wife is there, and she gives you the similar news. She says, honey, I can't believe this. I've been pinching myself all day. I received a ticket in the mail. I happened to check online, and sure enough, we've won $10 million. Now, kids, how excited would you be? Well, pretty excited, I imagine. Now, now the same week, there's news that somebody in Connecticut, just a random person you don't know from Adam, has won the Powerball. Which are you more excited about? The guy in Connecticut who won the lottery or your dad winning the lottery? Which one is more exciting? Anybody want to venture an answer? Yeah, it's way more exciting if your dad wins the lottery. Why? Oh, yeah. Good job. Evan is correct. Nail on the head. So when your dad wins the lottery, you become the beneficiary. You are blessed with that money. Why? Because there's a covenant relationship between you and your parents. If your parents receive a huge blessing and benefit, you know that that will translate down to you. Like Evan says, eventually through inheritance and in a, you know, in a good home, the benefits that accrue to the parents, they extend down to the children. So this is an illustration of covenant headship. Have you ever, when was the last time you considered yourself a lottery winner, so to speak, because of what Noah gained in his promises from God? Well, let me tell you, you are. Because of the promises to your forefather, Noah, you do not reap judgment, but God has granted you grace to be born and to receive the gospel, to be gathered in as a saint if you are in him today, and to enjoy the blessings and privileges of that which any lottery ticket could never compete with, the hope of glory eternal, even in new heavens, new earth, heaven in the meantime, after you die. These are the blessings and benefits that we receive through our covenant head. Who is our covenant head? Noah was a covenant head for his family, but he was a picture of a covenant head to come, and that is Jesus Christ. What do you guys think are the rewards of Jesus Christ's own suffering? That's a term that the Puritans would often use back in the day. May the Lamb have the rewards of His suffering. We see it in Scripture. He was exalted, coronated, received a crown and kingdoms of the earth before the right hand of the Father. He is glorified never to die. He received as an inheritance this position of sovereignty and power, majesty and lordship. And what does the Scripture say? That we also are raised with Him. That we rule and reign with Christ. That our future is to inhabit that glorious realm with Him. You see, we are lottery winners of the covenant of grace in Christ because He is our covenant head. And that's what Noah teaches us. This headship that is represented here immediately with Noah extended to his family, but extended beyond his family even to the generations. Have you ever sped read through the genealogies in the Bible? If you've done a Bible in a year plan, invariably you come to one of these places in the Scriptures where you know, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so, and and almost none of the names you can pronounce because you're unfamiliar with them, and they have their roots in an ancient language. But notice, next time, here's a little key for you for interpretive importance and significance, hermeneutical significance of the genealogies and scriptures. 
Next time you come to a list like that, let's say in 1 Chronicle 1, 1 Chronicles 1, or even Matthew 1, notice or pay attention. This genealogical list is evidence of God's faithfulness to His covenant with Noah. That list would not exist if God had not given that promise to Noah and kept it through the centuries. More than this, you would not exist if you, if you were not in Noah, so to speak, and the beneficiary of God's covenant promises to him. Now, there are companies that are making millions right now called like 23andMe and stuff, and you can type online, and you can find out your own genealogy in the providence of God. The fact that you can trace your family line back, and if technology afforded, and if there was enough historical record, yes, indeed, you could go all the way back to Noah and his family members. This also is evidence of the scope of the covenant that God made with Noah. These promises, when you see a rainbow, it is meaningful for you, not just for Noah and for his family because of these concepts. So Noah, his family, the generations to follow, and all of the creatures as well are within the scope of the Noahic, if you will, covenant. This also reminds us of God's common grace. What is common grace? In theology, we distinguish between God's special grace or His saving grace and His common grace. God's saving grace is that grace that He extends to you in Jesus Christ whereby you are saved from your sins and you become born again and you enjoy heaven one day, eternal life through Christ your Lord. His common grace is God's kindness towards the world, to His creatures, enduring with the wicked world. And we see evidence of this even in our text today. I will establish a covenant, God says, not just with Noah and his offspring, but with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. Evidence of this common grace has preceded this moment in chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord says, while earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God's grace, His mercy, and His providence, His common grace, if you will, are extended to the natural order. He keeps the forces of gravity in place. The laws of physics are in divinely prescribed and maintained by His sovereign hand. The days and the weeks and the regularity of the heavenly bodies that are responsible for the changing of seasons, the eclipses and light and dark, night and day, and so on and so forth. All of these things are evidence of God's grace. Yes, indeed, He holds this world, indeed this universe, in the palm of His hands because of the scope of His covenant. The natural order, the creatures themselves, are within the range of His lavish grace, His lavish mercy, His kindness spread abroad, not just the individuals, but even in general sense, to the natural order itself. Now let's go to number three. Concepts of covenant revealed through God's Word to Noah. Sovereignty, scope. Number three, signs. There are covenant signs attached to covenants invariably, and Let's figure out what the sign was of Noah's covenant. Before we read it, I wonder, another trivia question. One of you kids, do you know what the sign was of the covenant with Noah? What was the sign, some of you younger ones? Rainbow. Excellent. Rainbow. Let's see if you're correct. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. 
and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So yes, the rainbow itself is a covenant sign. Covenant signs are not unique to this relation, these, uh, this, these terms and conditions of relationship that God hammered out with Noah at this time. But think of with Abraham, circumcision was a covenant sign that attended the relationship, the specific calling, specific revelation of God's order in, uh, uh, between him and his creatures at that time, specifically through the covenant had Abraham. And we move forward through covenant history to Moses, and the Sabbath is a covenant sign, Passover, the celebration of Passover for years and generations, this shall be a sign for you. It shall, te- it shall be uh, an instruction, a means of education for your children to realize and remember the salvation of God from the oppression of Egypt. And then we come to the new covenant. Does anyone know what the covenant signs are for Christians in the new covenant? Anybody know there are two of them? Someone says baptized. That's excellent. Ren is correct. Baptism is one sign of the new covenant. Someone know the second one? I'll give you a hint next week. Sabbath day, that's good. Israel, more specifically, says communion. That's correct. So generally speaking, we have two signs of the new covenant that our covenant had Christ initiated for us. Christ said in Matthew 28, Jesus commanded His disciples, go and baptize all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. I'm with you to the ends of the earth. And that was a sign that He initiated. He gave us of our relationship with Him, baptism. And secondly, Jesus said in communion, do this at the Lord's table in remembrance of me. And so this is the idea of covenant sign that goes all the way back to the days of Noah. Now, this appearance of rainbow was preceded by an altar moment we read of last week. Verse 20 of chapter 8, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This altar and sacrifice moment goes hand in hand with covenant sign. This was an acknowledgement of Noah, of the remembrance of the Lord. There's like a reciprocal relationship or a mutual remembrance in our relationship with the Lord. He remembers His covenant. We remember that He remembers His covenant, if you will. And this is the purpose of covenant signs. It's so that we never take for granted or take lightly, or if we do, to correct us and convict us and to conform us to this awesome reality, awareness, and worship of the Lord that He has remembered us. So what does remembrance mean of God in Scripture? Is it just like, oh, tie a string in the finger so I don't forget something that I was planning to do before? It's more than that. When God remembers His people, what He is doing is initiating His sovereign purpose to act in accordance with His promise. So upon the covenant sign, every time you view that sign, that is to certify. It's a certificate of authenticity that God will act according to His promise. If you are a believer, every time you gather at the Lord's table and you hold that a cup in your hands representing Christ's blood, and you taste on your lips 
that piece of bread representing his broken body, you are tangibly returned to the absolute essentials of your salvation. Because the blood of a substitute sacrifice was shed, just like the blood of these substitute sacrificial animals symbolically was shed in Noah's day, so you can be saved. So the covenant sign points, it signifies to that which it substantially represents. And in baptism, that ties us right back to the days of Noah as well. As we often say, one of the significant features of baptism is that we pass through the waters of judgment and we come out unscathed. No one is drowned in baptism, so to speak, because we are in our ark, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the means, the instrument of salvation that carries us through what would otherwise utterly destroy us. Indeed, final judgment. As Peter tells us, there is coming a day of great fire where all of the, uh, of, all of the earth will be judged again at some point in the future, and only those who are saved in their ark, Jesus Christ, will remain. So this is the idea of covenant sign. There's altar and sacrifice. There's even times and seasons. Isaiah 54, 9 refers to the days of Noah to remind Israel, look to nature, the signs of nature like the rainbow, like the regularity of seed time, harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, day, night, to remember the faithfulness of the Lord. These things point to our God. Consider the rainbow today. The rainbow has been co-opted, or at least there is an attempt afoot in our culture today to co-opt the rainbow, to steal the imagery of that colorful prism of God's grace shining through the waters of rain and to associate it with something else. This is not by accident. The devil and his schemes are alive and well in the earth today. When we contrast the original intent of the rainbow and its purpose for its existence and the ideas that are associated with this, then we realize that the efforts to reassociate the elements of the natural realm with sinful, pagan, sacrilegious, and wicked and blasphemous things is an absolute affront to the sovereignty of God, and He will not stand for it. There will be a price to pay for co-opting or attempting to co-opt the signs of God's, God's love, His righteousness, His faithfulness, and His covenant promises to His people, and to use them for some pagan means. Mankind, science, uh, in its secular uh, naturalistic assumptions. It looks at the fossil record, the evidence of the great flood, and assumes that there is found evidence of self-generation, that creation made itself. And thus they try to co-opt the message of God's judgments and mercy found in creation itself to preach a different message. Indeed, they offer these things as incense to their modern-day idols. And furthermore, the rainbow has been co-opted or attempted to as a symbol of sexual liberation. You all are familiar with this imagery. This is, mark my words, this is a blatant and unabashed, it's unabashed desecration of covenant signs. A blatant, purposeful, rebellious, and unabashed desecration of covenant signs. This is indeed purposefully degrading the sacred in sacrilegious blasphemy. This is evidence of mankind knowing in their heart the truth and suppressing it, as Paul says, in unrighteousness. Think of Daniel chapter 5. Let me turn there with you since we have an extra moment to do so. Daniel chapter 5. I want to give you another example in covenant history, if you will, of desecration and consequences. Desecration and consequences. 
Now, there, the vessels of the temple God had given as symbolically important in the Mosaic Covenant. But there came a time in history where there was an exile and an occupation of the Holy Land as partial judgment for, or as judgment for the people's sin. But then this king, this pagan king, begins to have his way with the vessels of the temple. King Belshazzar, Daniel 5, 1, made a great feast for the thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple and the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and the lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. So you see the context here is licentiousness. It's uh, this profanity and this desecration of the holy. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. They took something that was sacred and set apart, meant to signify and symbolize and speak of God, and they grabbed it and they desecrated it and they used it to worship their false gods. What happened? Does anyone know? Judah, do you know what happens after this? That's exactly right. What happens, Judah, after this feast of the desecration of the vessels of the temple? That's correct. Let's read about it. Verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, then the king's color changed. Have you ever seen something that made you deathly afraid? People say you turn white as a sheet. This is what happened to this king who just seconds before in his pompous self-aggrandizement, in his pride as the sovereign, as the greatest empire of the earth, had been taking and desecrating the things that God had set apart as holy for his own selfish pleasure, his own hedonistic fun. In this moment, his color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. It means he became very, very scared. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple. I trust you know the rest of the story. No one knew what these words meant save the prophet of God. Why? Because this was a message of God. Why? Because it was judgment for desecrating the holy. The pulpits of this land have a responsibility to preach the same in our day. If you seek to co-opt what God has set apart even today as a sign of His holiness, His mercy, His justice and His wrath, and His grace extended through His covenant terms alone to man who is so undeserving, and you choose in your wickedness to steal that and offer that up to the false gods of sexual liberation, in our day, there is judgment to come. It may not come tomorrow. But at some point, the hand of God, as it were, will reach down into American society and begin to write on the wall. Whatever form those consequences take, the once proud, the once boastful, the once king by, you know, and affirmed as such by those who worshipped him instead of God, their color will change. They'll grow white as a sheet. Their knees will knock and they won't know what to do. And the answer will only be found in the prophetic word of God, delivering the truth of how to be saved from, yes, even wickedness 
as sinful as this by placing your faith and trust in the only true King of kings, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Noah preaches this message, these events, the Noahic covenant, speaks to us of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. We best take heed lest we fall under some temporal judgment and worst of all, eternal judgment if we do not repent. Finally, as we bring this message to a close, there's covenant significance written all across this record. We're considering concepts of covenant revealed through God's Word to Noah. We've talked about the sovereign, talked about the scope, talked about signs. Let's close with a few notes of significance. On your own time, would you study these words? They're in your notes if you have a copy for your study through the week. Ezekiel 1.28, Revelation 4.3. Both are pictures, an apocalyptic vision, if you will, of the throne room of God. And both, in both pictures, in the prophets, Ezekiel and John, they see pictures of God's glory and majesty, His authority in the throne room, that is, the seat of His power to reign and to rule. They see into that realm, and they see rainbows. And these rainbows are a symbol of God's majestic authority to reign and to rule. This makes sense with the account of Noah. Every time the same instrument that was used to flood the earth because of its sin, namely rain dumping, we had a huge rainstorm. Providentially, it could serve well as an illustration of this message this morning. I don't know if you woke up in the middle of the night. Some of you said that rain so hard, the thunder was so loud last night that you woke up. Were you scared that this entire world would be flooded? No. Why? Because you had likely seen a rainbow in your recent past, or you believed the Word of God which says that that rainbow stands for God's providence to spare the earth that cataclysmic judgment. However, oh, so, so then as we see then, this rainbow is associated with the instrument of God's power to judge. Though we deserve a flood, the rainbow speaks of God's power to judge, but also God's power to save. And that rainbow encircles the throne of God. Do you not think that the rainbow is a sacred a thing as it were and should not be considered in, different, in a different context? And, and we do so at our own peril. And not to place any particular significance on one thing uh, and as if to worship it, or, but these things signify and symbolize and speak to something. And this is what we're getting at today. That is to say, these terms of covenant have cosmic implications. They speak to us of God's power to judge, God's power to save, God's right to rule, and God's throne, which is established from beginning, from before time began, and will continue for all eternity. Also, the significance of this covenant speaks to us of law and gospel. I don't know if you noticed, but in the first portion, there's laws laid down, is there not? For instance, chapter 9, verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, and it is, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image and a commandment. To the, that's a commandment to the negative. Thou shalt not shed man's blood without consequence. In verse 7, commandment to the positive. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. So this is a section of law. But then the covenant is given with this introductory language in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. So this speaks to the concept of law and gospel in Scripture. The law shows us our sin. The commandment of capital crimes for capital offense of murder shows us our sin. 
This was a provisional institution through civil government so man would not fall into the same level of wickedness as I see it before the flood, uh, after the flood, so that there can be a semblance of order in a post-fall world. These laws showed us our sin. But God revealed His grace through covenant. And again, we already marked the divine initiative. This is not because we follow the law that God makes promises to us. Any more than because Noah followed the law, he made promises to him. Unilaterally, God says, I establish, I establish, I have set, I will remember, I bring, I will see it, and so forth. Law and gospel. The law reveals to us our sin. The gospel reveals to us our way of salvation. The means that God supplies. And finally, spirit and word. There's a relationship between spirit and word in the Bible as well. And just a kind of larger category and pattern to study on your own time, you might consider how this dove is pictured in chapter 8, going forth, brooding over the face of the waters, bringing back a sign of life in its beak. The dove is associated with the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity in the New Testament. And so the Spirit's activity, the wind that blows, as we've talked about, ruach, same word for Spirit, and the waters recede, precedes the giving of the Word of God in covenant. So the Ruach, the wind, the waters recede, the spirit pictured by a dove brings back as a gospel herald a sign of life. There was another time in the future where the spirit would precede the word. And this happened at the ministry of Jesus Christ. At his baptism, again a covenant sign, uh, spirit, the spirit descended in the form of a dove upon Jesus. And at this moment, we can see the sovereign initiative of our Lord, the act of the spirit bringing to this world hope of salvation. And that is followed by Christ's ministry in chapter 4, where He goes forth and preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And He preaches the gospel of the kingdom of God. And those references are in your notes as well. So there we have pictures, even here in nascent form, if you will, of the cosmic implications, law and gospel, spirit and word. There is covenantal significance in the Noahic covenant. Just to summarize, this covenant reveals to us, that is God's word through Noah, that there is a sovereign, that there is a gracious scope of His covenant, that He has given us signs to reassure us of them, and there is deep significance reaching all the way to our lives on account of what He has spoken to us through the course of His redemptive history in all His holy word. Would you bow your head as we close in prayer? Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Scriptures. We thank You for the power of the gospel to save. We thank you for the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your covenantal word. We thank you for the revelation of your truth that is given to us by your gracious condescension. We thank you, Lord, that the scope of your mercy has reached all the way to our lives for those who confess faith in Christ. And we also thank you that the door of salvation is open this day. Today, indeed, it's the day of salvation for those who have ears to hear, to repent, and to believe and to enter the ark, as it were, Jesus Christ, to repent of their sin and believe that Jesus died for them. Lord, I pray that you would draw the lost unto salvation through the proclamation of your word, that you would convict and equip and sanctify your people through the declaration of the same, that you might be glorified, God, to the maximal power by the use of your word in our lives as we continue to strive to honor you and worship you as we behold the beauty of your majesty in your holy scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.